your husband is getting his ear pierced and wearing denim jackets. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. If you're a brand new listener, you might want to go back to some earlier episodes. That's always what I recommend. And if you are a regular listener, you know the crack. I'm actually a little bit tired because I went to the fucking gym today for the first time in, I'd say, six months. And you know I've been looking forward to that for so long. And it was incredible. It was everything I expected it to be. I went to the gym. It felt amazing to just be leaving my house to have something to do, somewhere to go. I did a workout on my chest. I did some leg stuff. I did a bit of cardio. I stimulated muscles that hadn't been stimulated in a while. It was perfect. It was fucking incredible. I feel brilliant. And... Like, I was hungry at two parts in the day today where I wouldn't normally be hungry because I was stuck in the loop of quarantine. Like, I ate my dinner today and when I ate my dinner, it was different to how I ate it yesterday. I had that specific type of hunger where you've earned your dinner, where your body is asking for whatever nutrients repaired the muscles that I ever so slightly damaged earlier on that day. Now I'm tired at a time that I'm not normally tired. And when I sleep tonight, I'm going to have a different type of sleep than I've had over the past few months. I'm not going to have that lethargic sleep that I have because I've been stuck in my house all day. I'm going to have a restorative sleep where my body is actively repairing my muscles. My brain is going to give me, and is giving me, different reward chemicals. The reward chemicals I was getting were mainly from social media. Now I'm getting reward chemicals because I've done a good thing to my body today. So I've basically, I've shaken up and shocked my body. I've broken the pattern. And the endorphins are flying around my head. I have those lovely pains that you have in your body after you go to the gym. I have more awareness. I feel positive. I I felt like listening to music today for the first time in a long time. Just fantastic. Absolutely brilliant. I'm so happy that the gyms are open again. I had full social distance. I just had a lovely, lovely fucking day. And I can't wait to go back to the gym tomorrow. To do some different exercises. It's just. I can't believe how excited I am. About something I used to completely take for granted. It's so wonderful. And I'm so fucking grateful. And and all this is going to have a knock on effect. With my productivity. I've been concerned about my productivity. Over quarantine. Um, I haven't been. I, my creative output hasn't been what it would normally be. And I'm supposed to be writing a book at the moment. But I know when I'm in the gym and I'm in get, listening to music and truly experiencing the present moment joy of exercising and being around other people with safety. That's just the type of process where my brain and body can relax to the point that I start thinking creatively again. Because the stress isn't in my body. When I'm stressed, my primary cognitive focus is looking for threats. You know, looking for threats in the future or thinking about threats in the past. But when I'm exercising, 
that's not present. I'm enjoying life. And when I'm not searching for threats, then I'm being creative and I'm having fun. So I'm a happy camper today. I'm a fucking happy camper. And I hope that ye as well. Look, I hope that you, you, you know, did you go and get to meet a friend and sit down and have a drink with him or go to a fucking restaurant or did you get to go to the gym? Because lockdown has been slightly lifted in Ireland after a long time. And I'm just happy for all of us because I'm sure everyone had a little moment today or the day before. So fair play to us. So I have a special podcast this week. It is about the housing crisis and the rent crisis. Okay. And I'm speaking to an expert in social policy, Dr. Rory Hearn, who's an assistant professor. And he has spent a huge part of his adult life researching the housing and rent crisis in Ireland. Rory's also a podcaster. He has a podcast himself called Reboot Republic where he speaks to experts and change makers about housing, inequality, social issues. It's part of uh, an Irish podcast network called tortoiseshack.ie which is like a small, independently run podcast network mainly about politics where really, really important conversations happen around politics. But Rory's part of that network. So ye know that housing and rent and inequality, these are issues that I care about and issues I speak about and they're issues that I've done quite a bit of work on. Creative work. Um, like my BBC series Blind by Undestroys the World, the first episode of that was about housing and myself and a team of investigative journalists looked into the inequality of the housing and rent market in the UK and we looked into why it's so difficult to get a mortgage, why rent is so high. We looked at how people are massively exploited within the renting market and we looked at how huge amounts of international criminal cash are laundered in the housing market in London in particular. So this is an area that I've been trying to draw attention to for years but I've never really dedicated a podcast episode to it and I've certainly never done a podcast episode about housing and rent with an expert in that area so I want to do it like an act of public service as such to speak with an expert about the housing crisis the rent crisis and to do it in a way that is absolutely simple and understandable and I'm going to ask the most basic questions such as why is rent so high? Why can't people get a mortgage? What the fuck is a vulture fund? What's private equity? What's neoliberalism? And to have a really in-depth but digestible conversation. And also, what are the fucking solutions? Because you might be thinking, Jesus blind boy, the weather's nice. Do I really, I can't afford my rent. Do I really want to listen to a podcast about that? Well, when I speak to people about these things, I don't believe in doing something where you're just laying out everything that's wrong. It's like, here's an expert. Let's ask, what are the solutions also so that we can feel informed and empowered and positive and that we can feel that we can engage in some type of action, some type of positive action. And I'm doing this too as well because it just it's in my awareness recently. Because you remember two podcasts ago where I was speaking about a newspaper 
attacked me for speaking about mental health and I was trying to point out that I bring experts onto this podcast and it really made me aware of we have a space, we've got a fucking space here with loads of listeners to have the type of conversations, important conversations that simply are not happening in this format on television and radio. Yes, they do speak to people who are experts in policy on TV, on Irish TV and Irish radio about the housing crisis. But they don't do it for 90 minutes. And usually what they do is they'll bring an expert on, they'll speak for 10 minutes, they have to distill everything down into 10 minutes. The language is often exclusionary, it excludes people. And then when the person speaks, they bring someone else on who has an opposing view, then an argument happens and we just want to turn off the TV or turn off the radio and we feel ever more isolated from something that's deeply important. So I want to do the opposite of that. I want to fucking speak to an expert. I want to have the crack. And I want to ask the most basic questions possible. And I want you to come away from it. Feeling informed and empowered. And also for enough of us to be able to make politicians feel really afraid. For when the politicians come knocking on your door for votes... You understand this deeply and you can ask them frightening fucking questions that they can't avoid. And you'll be able to know, because you're informed about this, whether they're genuinely engaging with your answer or whether they're talking out of their fucking arse and they don't want that. They'd like to keep us misinformed so that they can pay us lip service and give us some flowery bullshit. Well, fuck that. Because this chat is going to show you that there are actual solutions to the housing crisis, to the rent crisis, to homelessness. There are fucking solutions. And it's not as complicated and as uncontrollable as the government would like us to think it is. So here we go. Enjoy. Rory Hearn, and you you are a professor in... So, no, you're a professor, but you're, you lecture in social policy. In Maynooth, is this correct? That's right. I am a assistant professor of uh, social policy um, in Maynooth University, lecturing there to the the poor students who do social science. Some of the go off, some of them go off and become social workers, work in policy and rights, become community workers, all sorts of people who give a serious crap about the world and want to mm-hmm. work to make it better. So they're the sort of students we have, and it's great crack. So, um, when I, you you came to my attention mainly, like, I know you're through podcasting and also you had a few articles out recently in the newspaper and one of them, it was for the journal and what struck me was just the heading. The government does not want you to be able to, to buy a home. The government does not want you to be able to afford to buy a home and that as a heading just it knocked me for six because it's like well if someone's going to put that as the headline of an article holy fuck that this person is passionate and you're incredibly passionate to the point that sometimes it makes you deeply emotional about housing in Ireland and when I listen to you and when I read what you're saying I'm just like this person needs to be listened to there's people out there who feel really confused about the housing market the renting market what's happening people confused about their futures and you seem to be very confident about what you're saying so 
do you want to speak first about your history of housing policy in Ireland and what you've been doing around it academically? Yeah, no, and cheers for having me on. And I'm delighted to have the opportunity to be here and to talk to you and uh, have huge respect for, you know, what you've been doing, you know, in your own way and, you know, questioning and challenging um, back since the austerity years and further and, you know, putting across, I think, particularly your focus on mental health. And I think is so important because it's interesting Um you know, housing, you wouldn't, you know, so people kind of look at you, you're, you know, you get emotional about housing and then, you know, you stop and think for a second and you go, why you know, shouldn't you? Why shouldn't you? And because my mental health chat that I'm talking about, I, I, I put a lot of that is at the feet of things like policy around housing. It is, of course, you know, because like I actually people throw it at me and I'll come back to in a minute, just explain my own journey, I suppose, how it got to this point in terms of housing. Um, and research but like people put it back to me and go oh you're bringing emotion and you're making the housing policy debate emotive and I go how can you look at you know children homeless in hotels growing up Mm. and you know young people been stuck at home with their parents till their 40s and others young people going I'm just gonna as we saw in the Instagram chat on your question you know when you put up I was coming on People going, you know, which country should I emigrate to? Mm-hmm. How do you not get emotional about that? How do you not mm-hmm. go, this is like, this is upsetting. It's socially devastating. It's, I think it goes back to the people bloody running our country are, you know, repressed and suffer all sorts of disassociation that they don't, uh, they don't address. And, but anyway, we'll come back to that. But mm-hmm. my journey, yeah, in terms of what I started back in, God, it's almost 20 years ago now. It's hard to believe getting old. Um, I was studying in Trinity College and I did my uh, PhD in 2003. I started it looking at housing. Of course, that was the height of the Celtic Tiger. The boom was going on. Um, And I was looking at how at the time, again, something you've talked about before, that whole process of what's called neoliberalism, which is essentially Mm -hmm. how in the past, back in the, you know, after the Second World War, really, you had what came into being was the Keynesian world order, which was essentially that across Europe and across America in the 50s. You mean Keynes is in the, the economist Keynes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Keynes, the economist, yeah. It, it, central to that idea in the 1950s, 60s, 70s was that the state, the, the, each government in every country accepted that its core responsibility was to ensure people had housing. Mm-hmm. They built it. Uh, we know in this country they built council housing. You know, in a scale that was you know nothing like what we do now but sure you know half the population you know were linked back to someone who was uh you know either bought or was grew up in, in a council house mm-hmm. um and they developed the health service they developed they even developed industry you know we had huge industry you know run by government to ensure people had and central know, my my dad was with Aer Lingus my dad was a government employee yeah, ex- exactly. And the likes of Erlingus. And central to Keynes's theory, his economic theory, was that if you rely on the market, the private sector, to provide things like, you now he went as far as jobs, but housing, mm-hmm. um, health, education, um, investment in things like jobs, investment, that you will have massive inequalities, rampant inequalities. So, so just to be clear here, so the... Keynes Sorry, I'm gone a bit saying, deep straight away. I was so yeah, I'm trying to keep it as basic as possible. So what we're saying here is that like post-World War II, the government, which is essentially taxes, is like there's going to be industry, 
housing, healthcare, and this is going to be bolstered by taxes. And this was the favourite approach of an economist called John Maynard Keynes. Keynes was Keynes was his that was his idea. His idea. He basically said if you look back at the um the the crash of the twenties and thirties, that that famous crash um mm-hmm. prior in between the World War One and World War Two, he pointed to that as showing that if you left the market run rampant and if you relied on the market for investment, that your economy will basically go through these constant boom and bust and mm-hmm. you will have huge inequality. And so, so you got to back it up with the state. Exactly. The state actually mm-hmm. should be the core um, to ensuring that there's ongoing investment in housing and education. health. And some people would call that socialism. Some people would call it socialism. It's known better as social democracy. That's kind mm-hmm. of the history of social, what's called social democracy across Europe. Some people would call it socialism. It was broadly, but he wasn't an anti-capitalist now. He was very much mm-hmm. in favor of a capitalist economy. But his idea was you would have a mixed uh, the society, the state part would play a really big role within capitalism. Yeah. Um, that was his idea. But essentially what, what happened was you had the likes of then what are called the neoliberals, which was Milton Friedman, uh, Reagan, Ronald Reagan mm-hmm. in the States as president, and of course Margaret Thatcher um, in the UK. They were the ones who came along then in the late 1970s uh, and got their new world order in place, which was essentially we roll back the state that we get the market in, we get the investors in, we open up finance, this whole digitalization was starting of financial markets and they started with the whole privatization wave. So they privatized, mm-hmm. you know, the transport, they privatized uh, as much public services and housing was a big one. Housing was at the core. Yeah. And what's really interesting is that at the time there was uh, housing, if you think back to Mar- what Margaret Thatcher said, what she said was that... Um, the she attacked in particular council housing, what we would know as council housing or local authority mm-hmm. housing, because this idea that it would create it creates lazy people, that it creates mm-hmm. feckless people. What she mm-hmm. said is, you know, everybody should be their own individual, that you are reliant mm-hmm. on yourself. And she's about creating these. Everybody becomes a capitalist, basically. And it was a deeply ideological move. It was a deeply um, ideological approach. It was about essentially um and housing was at its core. It was about turning housing into a commodity, basically. The state should no longer be building this council housing. And we'll come back to that the longer-term impact. But anyway, the long and the short of it, I was doing research into things, what were called public-private partnerships in Trinity, uh, not in Trinity, but which were been done in social housing estates in Dublin at the time, mm-hmm. in the 2000s, where the council was selling off the land to private developers because, of course, land prices were rising at that time. Yeah. They said, we're getting out of social housing, so we want to basically privatize this. And I started my research looking at that, basically, and I started to see that, hang on a minute, there was huge problems here because the uh, private sector was, of course, trying to maximize profit off the land. Then, of course, we had the crash in 2008 and we saw that yeah. all these projects collapsed. So I was researching that, saw the inequalities. I also saw the value of social housing to communities. Then I started working in a community just 2009. The crash happened. A community in Dolphins Barn, a social housing community. Um, they were looking for a policy person and someone to support them, uh, try and get better conditions for the housing. They offered me a job. I worked there then as a mm-hmm. kind of community worker, in a sense, for about six years. Uh, incredible time, incredible community, very difficult. I saw the coal face. The way in which that community, a poor community, was devastated, absolutely devastated by the cuts that happened at that time to community mm-hmm. services, to welfare supports um, and how housing was so fundamental because the, the issue they had was poor quality housing. It was dampness. 
It was mold. It was sewage coming back up in vats. And I saw how fundamental housing was to their uh, to their lives. And then I went started then basically went back to my academic role an academic role in 2013, started uh, writing more and more on housing, researching. And ultimately that ended up I wrote a book in 2020 called Housing Shock, which I suppose set out um, at the Irish housing crisis and how to solve it set out. Um, a kind of a vision for Ireland about how we could change, need to change our housing system. But importantly, what I highlighted in that was the whole financialization process, this whole process of investors coming in here, uh, been invited in by government, buying up. Um, when you say investor, right, is an investor, is that what a vulture fund is? Well, yeah, it is vulture fund. And investor obviously is a word, because, you know, lots of people are investors. In relation to housing, the big kind of shift that happened in between the crash in 2008, 2009 and where we are now is that investors in property have changed. And yeah. the we have the rise of this kind of global vulture fund, this real estate fund. Like that, That's what I want to ask. Like so, so recently in the media, we had this shocking situation where in Maynooth, there was a housing estate of new houses for, I think it was for first time buyers. And a lot of civilians were ready to buy these houses. And then a vulture fund came in and bought them all. And the vulture fund will sell that to the rental market. How do we get, how did we get there? Yeah. That, 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 that makes a lot of people go, what the fuck? It makes people go, who is a vulture fund? How can I stop them? Because <laughs> people don't know what it is. Yeah. Who is a vulture fund? They're, now I can stop them. I love that. They're crazy um, words. Yeah. It's... How did we get here? I suppose the first thing is that, you know, we had the government saying, oh, they were surprised and shocked. How did they end up buying a housing estate? This is shocking. We have to do something about it. Complete nonsense. Their policies yeah. brought us here. Their very policies led us to this situation. You know, I describe it in my book specifically. Is it incompetence or is it deliberate design? That's an interesting, that's a big question. That's an interesting question. I've debated with a few people recently about this. I think it's a combination of actual, uh, it's, it's not that they really intended that an estate would be bought up, but what they did do was they went out and after the crash in 2008, 2009, and I kind of highlight that as a key point, a turning point, mm -hmm. the, the government essentially um, turned around and they said, OK, if we look back at the response to that crash, um, the implemented what, austerity cut, you know, programs, cut spending massively. They put in place things like job bridge. Do you know what I mean? Those mm -hmm. whole unpaid internships. Yeah. And they told a generation to, you know, emigrate, get yes. out of the country. We don't care about you. And I was actually looking at the figures yeah. last night. They are shocking when you look. Quarter of a million, quarter of a million uh, young people between 20 and 40 emigrated in those just five years. Sure. Rory, I remember like Horse Outside, which would have been my biggest song with the rubber band that's happened in 2010. And... It's like what I'd say to anyone is don't have a big hit during the middle of a recession like that because when we would try and go to do and do gigs around that song in smaller towns, there was no young people. Yeah, yeah. They were and and we'd come back six months later and it had halved. I just couldn't and me personally because I was from that generation. I was in my twenties when that happened. I just can't believe how many people went. Yeah. Well, I was, you know, and then I got to Australia and they're all there. Yeah. Yeah. And and what's what's really kind of I think interesting, I was I was actually putting a figure, it's the combined population of um Waterford City, Cork City, and Limerick City. 
is a quarter of a million people. That's how many were were emigrated in those five. And a years. lot of them want to come back now, Rory, and they just simply won't because of what the place is like now. Not only can they not come back, but now we've another generation talking yeah. about emigrating. And I was going... And not for lack of jobs. Not for lack of jobs, no, but because of the housing situation. And the the, the thing that's enraging about this, to me anyway, and, and, you know, is that they, the policies that they were putting in place at that point in 2010, 11, 12, first of all, austerity was about trying to, you know, basically make up for the massive devastation of the crash. Yeah. So they were putting that cost onto people who did nothing to do with it. Austerity, and, just, just to make it, it, austerity is basically when you, you defund a lot of public services and then you make extra taxes for people to pay. Is that yeah, correct? Exactly. And what, what was yeah. happening was essentially it was cutting sp- spending in public services. As I said, it was also, it was cutting wages in the public sector. They yeah. introduced that thing where, you know, teachers who were hired after 2011 have a lower wage. You know, it was yeah. that whole pay inequality thing. It was about cutting back and younger people paid that price. Yeah. But at the, what they were doing, I was thinking about, if you were 10 years of age back in 2010, your older siblings who were in their early 20s were been forced to emigrate. But little did mm-hmm. you know when you were 10 years of age that the government was putting in place policies that would then force you to emigrate in 2020. Because mm-hmm. what they were doing was, they said in order to basically get the banks back up and running again, they created what's called NAMA, which is the na- national... Now, here's the thing. Again, NAMA, is a, it's another word that we've heard so much that no one really knows what the fuck it is or what it means. What was NAMA? So NAMA was the National Asset Management Agency set up in 2009, 2010 to basically take all the toxic loans. So all those loans that had gone pear-shaped that were related to the property market. And this could mean someone, someone in Cork or someone in Limerick who spent 400 grand on a house... And then all of a sudden the crash happens and they don't, they can't pay their mortgage anymore. So they just throw the keys in the door. And it's like, what happens to that mortgage? Yeah, that is part of it. But even more importantly, it's the uh, very well played, um, I might say, solicitor or doctor who invested in five rental properties and can no longer pay them off. Or it is the developer uh, who um, borrowed 250 million off Anglo-Irish to speculate like, in building um, shopping centres. Like there's this giant unbuilt shopping centre in Limerick and it's been derelict for 12 years and they couldn't even get the cranes out of it because the developer couldn't pay off the money that they'd borrowed and it's just this huge eyesore for more than a decade. Exactly. So there was a... And that happened all over Ireland. That ha- but there was a huge amount of apartments that were built, houses, but also land that was held that was... Um, basically linked with loans that were held by the banks. And these loans were called toxic. So basically what the government mm-hmm. wanted to do was get all those bad loans off the Irish banks so our financial system would be able to continue. And mm-hmm. what they did was they took them all off the old Anglo-Irish bank, got wound up, put them into NAMA, almost 70 billion worth of mm-hmm. land, assets, property was put into NAMA. And you would think at that point that you would go 2011, 12, you know, country in an absolute jock. Why don't we use this to completely restructure our housing system? Like we have enough land now. This is back in 2012 and property to provide a housing supply for the next 20 years of this country. We could provide affordable housing. But no, they said, no, 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 no. 
that wouldn't uh, get the property interest back again. That wouldn't get the uh, all the different interests who 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 benefit from what I call, and you like this term, the uh, the property real estate finance industry complex. Do you remember Noam Chomsky's mm-hmm. military industrial complex? Yes, that he talked about who really ran policy in the U.S. was the big yeah. military. Uh, Fun Eisenhower warned about it. Eisen, one of Eisenhower's last statements that he gave as president was he was basically saying the wars of the future aren't going to be created because of conflict. They'll be created because the military industrial complex needs to make money from weapons and therefore they will create wars. And I think you can draw that analogy directly to Ireland and our housing crisis. Our housing crisis. Deeply fucked up. Deeply, deeply. Um, and, and and this is what I think I've been revealing to people <laughs> and people are just going, what? This isn't like an accident or this isn't some like mistake of policy. This is actually policy design that is designed in the favor of certain interests. And so anyway, back to this. And we don't want to think like that. The thing is, uh, nobody wants to wake up in the morning and think that their government wants to exploit them. You, you need to be able to think that the government are there and ultimately they want to help us. But if they fuck things up, it's because they were trying their best. No one wants to go, oh, shit, they're actually designing things against us because they don't give a fuck. Yeah. And they will say they care. They will say they do. But if you trace, if you go back to their policies and this is what I suppose being the, the, the social scientist, like looking at their policies, looking at its impact. This is what I've been analyzing, you know, for years and years, looking at it, you know, what are they doing and trying to understand why are we in this crisis? What's happening? And I've traced it back. And it does trace back to those decisions where they set up NAMA, then they encouraged NAMA. Michael Noonan was Minister for Finance, the famous one who met with the the, uh, the funds invited them in consistently. They get set up. And, what, and what is it just to make again yeah. really basic? What is a fund? Okay, so a fund is you can have different types of funds, vulture funds, real estate funds, private equity funds. They're basically companies that are set up to either basically bring people, people who are wealthy, pension mm-hmm. funds. They put all this money into a investment fund that, so it's a faceless pile of cash. It's not one person buying a, buying property. No. It's a faceless pile of cash. Absolutely, yeah. And there's di- ones then these companies, these real estate companies operate in different ways than the vulture funds. They operate differently. You can have some vulture funds will come in like, uh, now I won't name them. Okay. Why, why are they called vulture? Why the use of the word vulture? The, that's a negative, that's a bad word. Because what they do is they come in when property prices are low. They mm-hmm. buy up the property as much as they can. And mm-hmm. then they basically sell it when the property starts recovering again. So they're basically profiting off and they'll do nothing to that property or else they will come in and they will buy up the property. They'll kick out the the uh, tenants and they'll try and get higher paying in tenants. They're vultures in that they're feeding off carcasses. The carcass is, Nama, is Nama a carcass? Nama wasn't the carcass. We were the carcass. Generation okay. austerity, generation, the, the homeowners who went into mortgage arrears, the tenants who've been evicted, generation rent are the carcass that these vultures have been feeding off. And our government have facilitated them to do that. And in terms of... So, okay. No, so Nama Nam is like the, the funeral, the, the, like the pallbearer who takes the carcass and puts it on the mountain for the... For the vultures yes, to peck at. Exactly, exactly. Okay. Nam is the deliverer of the carcass yes. onto the mountaintop. And uh, 
our government was standing there telling Nama, deliver the carcass up there so the vultures will fly in here. They'll clean it up for us and we'll get back to business as usual and it'll be all happy days. And we don't, we will say ostensibly we care about that carcass, but we really don't if you actually mm-hmm. boil it down. Because how could you claim to care about a carcass, about a people, a generation, quarter of a million forced to emigrate? Because this is the thing here, Rory, like, because we're in 21, 2021 now, and now we, we're, we're going to be looking at adults, people of 18 years of age who have grown up in things like emergency accommodation, in continual temporary accommodation. Yeah, yeah. And like, there's thousands of children. I calculate, again, there's no official figures calculating this, but me putting together the figures looking at Focus Ireland who count how many people, families are made homeless every month. Mm-hmm. I reckon in the region of 15,000 children were made homeless over the last eight years and their families. 15,000 children. And within that, Rory, what does homelessness mean there? Does that mean they're living on the streets or does living in emergency accommodation, is is, does, is that considered homeless? Yeah, it is. So that is someone yeah. who is basically uh, either forced to, you know, evicted from a private rental accommodation. Most of them are coming from, most families been made homeless and children are coming from the private rental sector because a landlord is deciding to sell or receivers have been appointed to the property. Um, and they are essentially then, they arrive at the local authority and the local authority then allocates them emergency accommodation. So there are people who are, who are in either hotels, you know, B&Bs, uh, these so-called family hubs. Um, and we know, and the research again that I've done on this, shows that any length of time, particularly after a couple of weeks, of children and families in emergency accommodation is devastating to children. Mm-hmm. It leaves long-term Absolutely. impacts. And when you talk about mm-hmm. emotions... And it's something like I was, you know, I've looked at research and, and I'm linked up with uh, people in the health sector as well around this. You know, there's children presenting to Temple Street Hospital with burns on their skins because they're in hotel rooms where the kettle is. They pull the kettle down on themselves because the family has no space. Yeah. Th- there's children trying to study to get a leave insert in a hotel room. There's mothers who have died by suicide because they felt they failed their children because they were homeless and couldn't find them a home. Now, if you don't get upset over that, Mm -hmm. there is something wrong with you. And I think there's something wrong with our political system and our society that we don't get upset by this. And I know a lot Mm -hmm. of people do, so I'm not actually blaming people, but our government, that we accept this as normal, that we accept this as okay. And... The, the you know the can thing, I make one point yeah, sorry, there on, sorry. On, on just just because I'm aware of my uh, some of my listeners aren't from Ireland the system you're describing there is emergency accommodation where basically uh, people who are homeless are put into hotels and then to take it back to the comment you made earlier about this being an industrial complex an industrial complex emergency accommodation is very profitable for hotels. It's it's a far profit system. It is. It is. And it's hugely problematic as well because, you know, hotels are making money from it. We know there's private operators making money from it. It's like direct provision. So if you have a system where there are companies who can actually fucking profit from a supposed solution, then what's the incentive to solve it? Because a lot of people are making money from it. Yeah. And I think that's a really important point and it one's that need, one that needs to be asked. Very fucked up. It very is. Fucked. It's very, it's deeply disturbing, deeply disturbing. And I think when you look at homelessness, right, Finland, we talk about internationally, Finland has solved homelessness effectively 
they have a plan to completely eliminate and they include people who are couch surfing and people who are um, what they call hidden homelessness in their homelessness figures, which we don't include. And they're solving it because they've done after that, Sue, often what I find that's really useful when, when, when it comes to conversations like this, Rory, is like, you know, you're laying out everything that's wrong. And everyone's listening and going, holy fuck, this is bad. And often what's really helpful in these situations is when someone like yourself goes, here's an example of, of somewhere else that's doing it better. So who's doing it better? What would you, Who would you look at in the world and say, here's a model for housing, homelessness, the renting crisis. Let's look at this model and try that because it's working there. Like we do with drugs in Portugal. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's really interesting because if you look at countries like Finland, and which I just mm-hmm. named there, yeah. they, as I said, are one of the few countries, because this isn't just an Irish problem. This is a global problem, yeah. and it's part of a wider shift, uh, yeah. as other countries have done, like the States, in Australia as well, uh, New Zealand, you know, uh, even the Netherlands, the UK. They have all made this shift over the last 30 years away from the state building uh, council social housing to relying on the market and turning housing into an investment and is, commodity. Is this also why we're seeing the rise of the 1%, why we're seeing growing inequality in, around the world in Western countries? Well, it's directly linked to it because if you go back to the investment funds, when you were asking me what are the funds, the, invos- the funds are essentially in many ways the wealth of the 1% gathered together and yeah. then funneled into areas where they can maximise the return on those investments. And property has become, which we call our homes, has become the most attractive area for investment for wealth funds and the wealthy globally because the economy is up and down. It's not given the same return, but property now, and in particular, rental property, is becoming the growing area of... uh, And this is what I highlight in my book. This is a trend that's been going on over the last five or six years, even a decade, where rental property, this whole build-to-rent thing, and that's what the government turned Mm -hmm. to. They turned to these global investment funds to provide permanent, uh, unaffordable rental housing. And that's why when they say about Maynooth, oh, what happened with Maynooth? You're, you set, you have a tax called a Real Estate Investment Trust tax set up in 2012 and 13. So they don't pay hardly any tax. So when you invite them in, rents have increased by almost 100% in the last decade in this country. There was numerous calls from myself and others to cap rents during 2015, 16, 17. The government never did it. And they actually said in the doll, we're not doing this because we're actually, we would be worried that we would turn off investors from coming in here. They actually handled... And why did they they, want the... the, uh, Vulture funds aren't making jobs. Because basically what happened at the period of during the crash, post-crash austerity, then they initially they wanted to, as I said, offload all the loans, toxic loans, off to these investors to get our economy back going again. But then what happened was they did realize from 2013 onwards, as the economy was returning, that they, 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 there would be a housing issue. They realized then there was an emerging housing supply issue. The Irish yeah. construction sector finance was broken. Um, yeah. And so they said, oh, these investment funds, and they were convinced by them. They were wooed by them. That these, you know, this whole okay. build to rent thing, this would be great. Sure. Aren't we moving to a rent? They were sold some bullshit by some powerful lobbyists. Exactly. Absolutely. Kennedy Wilson was in there. They said explicitly they went in there and told them, don't put in place rent caps because that'll deter our investment. And they basically turn handed generation rent. They handed you in your 20s and 30s and all coming behind you over to investment funds as a permanent asset to be squeezed from. And this is where this bull, where they go on about, oh, but sure, you know, people want to rent now. You know, we're becoming a European country. 
or like you know the the continental countries like Germany where they've you know everybody rents you're going yeah but we don't have affordable rental here and we don't have yeah. secure rental you can't put like a picture people there up. don't think about rent they don't think about it it's just a thing they do but it's here it rent is the only thing people think about because they have to yeah and we have social housing rental which is actually affordable but what we don't have is private rental that's affordable and secure. You know people renting. They can't even have a bloody pet in. They can't put a, a bike outside yeah. their door in apartment complexes. Families can't live there. So it's it's nonsense saying, oh, we, you know, it's okay, people are renting now. But you're going, but that's, and that's why people want to own because they can't get secure, affordable uh, rental. And they essentially- People want to own because their mortgage will be half the price. Like of the yeah, any, housing estate, yeah. any, any housing estate in Ireland, any housing estate in Ireland, you can have someone who has a mortgage and their mortgage is 75% less than their next door neighbor who's renting. Yeah. And and it's just like, it, it's shocking. And and people say, oh, well, the the solution is, you know, you, you allow people borrow more. But if you allow people borrow more, that will get us back to the Celtic Tiger problem. Yeah. You, what you do is what they won't do which is the investment funds have changed our Irish, the Irish housing market. It's no longer the case that someone wanting to buy a home or rent a home can go into the housing market and try and compete with others who are trying to buy a home and have some sort of level playing field. You now have these giant funds who have trillions of a war chest to buy up property. And you you can't compete against them. No. And the government's measures that they brought. And that's what happened in Minute. That's what happened in Minute, exactly. And the government's measures that they brought in as a response were just farcical. The fact they excluded apartments, you know, apartments are homes. Apartments are what investors want. And of course, what happened to the the IRS REIT, which is one of the the real estate investment trusts who own, who are Ireland's biggest landlord now, private landlord. Yeah. What happened? Their shares the next day after the government introduced its policies, the share price went up (laughs) because they knew that this is a green light for us to keep buying up apartments, keep building build-to-rent apartments. Going to pause briefly there now, you glorious cunts. Um, so we can have the ocarina pause. I'm going to play an ocarina. It's a Spanish clay whistle because you're going to hear an advertisement right now. And I don't want to alarm you. That was the ocarina pause. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
You heard an advert for something. I don't know what the advert was for. It was algorithmically generated depending on what you search for. This podcast is supported by you, the listener, via the Patreon page. Patreon.com forward slash The Blind Boy Podcast. This podcast is my full-time job. Being an artist is my full-time job. What I do is my full-time job. This is how I earn a living. This is how I pay the bills. And I love doing it. It's incredibly enjoyable and it's made possible by you. So the Patreon allows you to pay me for the work that I'm doing if you enjoy it. If you're listening to this podcast, you're taking something from it and you like it, just please consider paying me for the work I'm doing. Um, What I always say is that if you met me in real life, would you buy me a pint or a cup of coffee? Well, if you would, you can via the Patreon page. Also, by by supporting this podcast via Patreon, it keeps it 100% independent. I'm not beholden to any advertisers. No advertiser dictates the content of this podcast. This particular episode is the type of podcast that quite a lot of advertisers would have to take big issue with because we're talking about homelessness, we're talking about the rent crisis, we're talking about, we're critiquing government policy. This this stuff doesn't go well with a lot of brands. So they can fuck off. They can fuck off. Don't need them on the podcast. So please consider becoming a patron. Right, it means a lot to me. Um, also, if you can't afford it, if you can't afford that, if you can't afford to become a patron, don't worry about it. You can listen for free. You listen for free. But if you can afford it, you're paying for the person who can't afford it. Everybody gets the same podcast. I earn a living. What more could you want? It's a model that's based on soundness and kindness. Follow me on Twitch. Right, Twitch.tv forward slash The Blind by Podcast. I'm on Thursday nights at eight thirty. Writing a musical to the events of a video game. It's good fun. Join me. Also, leave a review. Go into your podcast app and review this podcast and leave a review. And not just my podcast, any independent podcast that you're enjoying. It's always important to leave reviews. Even once a week, if you want. That's hugely important to small independent podcasts because the podcast in space is starting to become overtaken with big money corporate podcasts. So, Leaving reviews and talking about podcasts via word of mouth and sharing podcasts on social media. This is a great way to help any independent podcast. Yart. A new systematic order is emerging, basically, and not just in Ireland, where large piles of faceless cash that are invested in by the wealthiest of the wealthy are trying to create an entire generation where you're just working to rent. Government policy created the generation rent. And then the vulture funds are basically feeding off them. And the, the problem is that unless you dramatically change that and quickly, this becomes permanent. Because yeah. when do people escape? When do they get out? And that's why I was so annoyed with government policy not taking this opportunity when clearly the public are saying, stop the investment funds. We want houses or homes. Houses and How do you stop? How do you stop the investment funds? You you very simply do what Germany did. You ban them. You say they can't actually buy new property and we don't want them. Uh, if they're going to rent out, they have to rent at affordable rates. You put in place measures like you, for example, you st- the starting place is you make um, buying property, renting property by them less financially attractive to them. So why are they so attracted to Ireland? They're attracted to Ireland because there's a housing shortage because the and actually a really interesting one one of the investment funds said explicitly last year 
What was the biggest threat to their uh, investment model? It was the government. They said it. If the government built affordable housing, our investment model would no longer work. So you're going. So the reason they come in here is because there's no people have no choice but to rent these really crazy expensive units that, you know, that's so that's what they're that's why they're coming in here. And how you stop them then is you build affordable housing on a massive scale. You control rents. You put in place security of tenure. So, so let's talk about Finland then, because we were going to mention. Yeah, Finland. sorry, sorry. What's, <laughs> what's Finland doing that are they? They're so shit hot that we 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 should aspire to. Well, what they do. So Finland are a great example in terms of homelessness. How they've stopped and ended homelessness. Vienna is a very in Austria. But that's a big statement. That's a big statement. Finland have ended homelessness. Well, they haven't completely ended it, but they've dramatically reduced it. And what they okay. have is, they have a plan to eliminate homelessness in four years time. So they have a very clear plan. What they've done is a number of things. Number one is they built social housing. That was a really key thing. They built social housing Mm -hmm. and they also had a dedicated um, not-for-profit company set up to build and uh, provide housing for homeless people. So they went at it saying, it's not the homeless people's fault that they're homeless. It's our housing system and obviously other issues in some cases in terms of health supports and that sort of thing. But fundamentally, it's a housing reason people are homeless. Whereas in this country, there's a whole argument about, ah, it's people's fault and stuff they did in the past. And, you know, we've had that from the highest yeah. level said here. But Finland said, no, we take what's called an actual housing first approach. We get people into secure housing. And that's what they've done. And they've targeted them. And so they allocate a certain amount of their housing for homeless families, for homeless individuals. And they have radically reduced their level of homelessness. They also measure who is potentially becoming homeless in terms of hidden homelessness, in terms of people couch surfing um, people coming out of prisons, for example, people. Mm-hmm. So they have a whole system in place where they're monitoring who's potentially becoming homeless. How are we set up for them? They work with people then who take up the housing, they support them to keep them in their tenancy and they go after it. And ultimately they had a plan and a vision and a commitment, a political commitment to end homelessness. And they're on the way to do it. So that's what and what's so special about the government that what like why that to me sounds like a compassionate approach, a compassionate and, and a critical and uh, a sensible approach. What What's so special about the government of Finland that the government of Ireland don't do it? Did the voters do this or is it just the government of Finland? Well, that's a good question. I think that the clearly as a society in Finland, they they do look at housing differently than how we look at it here or how we have looked at it up to this point, which is housing is seen as a human right. Housing is seen as a fundamental need, which it is, of course, for shelter. Mm-hmm. And they prioritize that within policy. Actually, the right to housing is in the constitution in Finland as well, which, of course, it isn't here. So there's there's an institutional, there's a societal commitment and desire. And they've discussed it. They had a homelessness crisis and they decided to go tackle it. And it would have mm-hmm. been pressure from public, pressure from NGOs and the agreement of government that we want to do this. And they went after it and they had a good idea and they went for it and they were committed to it. Um, whereas here, what we have is a is a homelessness is part of a much wider housing crisis. We still have a question where we don't have a right to housing in our constitution. Our last national housing plan called Rebuilding Ireland, which was the government's vision from 2016 to 2021, did not mention the right to housing once. Our -hmm. predominant approach to housing here is it has been treated as an investment asset. 
And I think that for me, this is the big hope for, and I know in your, um, the questions on Instagram, there was a number of questions about where is the hope? You know, what's the mm -hmm. hope for change? And for me, the hope for change is the value shift that I think is underway amongst generation rent and generation, what I call stuck at home, because actually there's about 350,000 young adults yeah. who aren't renting. They're stuck at home as well, living with yeah. their, their parents. But there's a value shift underway, which is in the Celtic Tiger years, everyone was told to go buy a house who had a bit of money. You know, everyone become, yeah. there was the whole idea of, you know, everyone watching the value of their property. And about tw 26 was the age. 26 was the age that you kind of wanted to start getting a house in the Celtic Tiger, which is insane now. Insane, but it wasn't just about getting a house. It's this idea of getting on a property ladder. You go, what yes. the fuck is a property ladder? Ah, uh, yeah. Which that, that, that means investment. That means you're you're not just getting home here. You're no. moving and shaking. You're flipping it. Exactly. And you're thinking about what is the value I'm adding to this one? You know, what? And yeah. then my second home. What, and maybe I'll buy another home, you know, and, and, and yeah. rent that out. And people were encouraged. Normal people, middle class people were told, buy a rental property. They were given loans yeah. to do it, the buy to lets, the, the rental property. Everyone was becoming an investor. And there was a tax incentive. There was. Shit too, wasn't yeah, there yeah. was a tax incentive. But I think the big shift that's happened since the crash is people have learned a very harsh lesson when you treat housing as an investment commodity, as an asset. You can get burned. People will lose their homes. And I think what's really changing now is, and I think where the government have got it wrong, is that they think in their policies over the last 10 years that getting property prices back up again, everyone, the middle class would be happy with that and all their voter base would be delighted. What they didn't think about and what they didn't count for is that those middle class people in their 50s and 60s have kids living with them who can't are priced out of a house. And I think the big shift is coming that people no longer see housing as an investment asset and a commodity. And they go, actually, what's needed is house prices to fall. Yeah. What's, and if I said that, in, you know, on, on national media, they go, what? What? You want house prices to fall? So how could you how could you have house prices fallen? How could you have rents fallen? But we need that to happen. And people will accept that because they go, my kids then will actually be able to get affordable uh, house. The vibe that people are at now, Rory, just people listening to my podcast and, and the, the vibe that I get is people simply, they just, so many people are unable to pursue a sense of meaning in their life, whether it be their career, their hobbies. There's people who are not in, a, in the career they want to be because to be in the career they want to be would mean taking the type of risk and that risk means they can't afford rent. So there's a lot of people just going, I simply can't live the life that I would like to live because everything is dominated by whether I can make the rent each month. So people just want, I will, I will accept anything that just lets me not have to worry about this rent so I can focus on me and being a person and, and trying to find out who the fuck I am. You can't find out who you are if all you're thinking about is making that extortionate rent every month. You can't take risks. That is, it's so... You can't go back to college. You can't, you, you know, someone in their 30s who, who, who goes, you know what, I spent, uh, I, I've been an accountant since I was 23. I don't like this. I think I might want to pursue the arts. I'll go back to college. No one's fucking doing that because there's too much risk. Yeah. Where are you going to get money for rent if you're in college? There's, you can't take risk anymore. It's so true. And I have been contacted by so many people over the last two months, like thousands of people who've told me these stories about, you know, people who do music, who yeah. can't do it because they can't live, you know, they, they just, as you say, they're dominated by thinking, how do I get rent? How do I cover the rent? Of course, they can't live in a city where they want to 
you know, in terms of culture and music and all this, which of course yeah. it makes a farce of our whole, you know, we are the country that supports, you know, the arts and supports, yeah, you support the arts, but you won't actually, no bloody artist can afford to live in this country. Yeah. Well, well, even with my own career, Rory, like I, I would have a better career. I would have a more successful career if it didn't mean, like the only way I was able to do my thing for the past 10 years is if, if I lived in Limerick. Because Limerick was one of the few places that that during, up until 2017, 2018, Limerick did not experience extortionate rents. So Limerick was the only place I could live where I could afford rent and still earn the shitty money you earn as an artist. Yeah. But I should have been living in Dublin. I should have been living in, in London. Yeah. I should have been or in, in America where you get opportunities. Yeah. But instead, it's like I have to compromise massively and say, I can live here in Limerick and I can afford it while still doing the odd gig. And that's the only alternative I have. Because if I want to go to London where I should be, I better have someone fucking financing me. I better have rich parents paying for that that rent. And, and it is or Dublin. Yeah, it is really interesting. Obviously, you've you know made an incredible job at it at it from Limerick, and it shows. It actually yeah. shows that you know, be you in Limerick, in Cork, and Waterford, in Tullamore, in Carrick, and Shore, in Bunkran, and Donegal. You know, you can do it now as well. But it doesn't take away from the reality that there are the big opportunities in the big cities. Um, I missed a lot of opportunities. That's what I'm saying. I missed yeah. a shit ton of opportunities yeah. and conversations and meeting people yeah. because the only way I could do this career was to stay in Limerick. Yeah. And think of that potential, as you talk about, that human yeah. potential of so many people. And as you talked about education, absolutely going back to education. It's a simple question. What would you be doing if you didn't have to worry about rent as much as you do? And you like, could- imagine that. Imagine asking that question to everyone under a certain age in Ireland. What would you be doing if rent wasn't the only thing you're worried about? Do you know what you probably wouldn't be doing? You wouldn't be working a shitty job that you didn't like. Yeah. You would probably be doing something meaningful to you. And, you know, it was a point Mm -hmm. I made earlier on. And it is something that's behind all the when you pair back the ideology of the market and housing and and government's attitude towards housing and that that perspective, that market view is that if you have countries that provide you know, huge amount of affordable public housing. You know, people are are lazy. They won't, you know, they won't, they won't take up these crap jobs. And you go, well, actually, that's a good thing. It's a good thing if people can actually fulfill their potential, if they can follow their dreams, if they can, mm-hmm. you know, that's what we should be supporting. You know, and also, and it's not just that, it's it's bus drivers, it's cleaners, it's, you know, people on on lower wages. How do they survive? How do they live in cities? We're destroying mm-hmm. communities, destroying any potential in towns and cities and again, forcing people to emigrate. And this, I am absolutely determined that I am going to try and do everything I can to stop another generation being forced to leave this country, this time because of affordable housing. And I think that we are at a point, and I feel this genuinely, that generation rent, generation stuck at home, that generation out there, they can make a massive difference. They're making it already. You know, we can see it in terms of the noise been made around this the last month. Housing has mm-hmm. shot back up to the number one political issue. But those stories, when we think back to, and I've, I've talked about this, when you think back to repeal and you think back yeah. to marriage equality, what were the changes? What was the real things that made the changes at that time? It was people's personal stories. It was their mm-hmm. experiences. And it's funny how similar the housing crisis is to those issues in a way. There is shame about the housing crisis. Mm-hmm. There is people have shame and they feel stigmatized. They feel personal failure because of their housing yeah. situation. They shouldn't. Yeah. And we need to start talking about this. Yeah. 
and like there's there's people in their there's people in their thirties who are looking at we'll say what what it meant to be in your thirties twenty years ago, and then are comparing themselves to that and feeling like utter shit. Like even something I noticed, which is really strange. I still get phone calls from uh, we'll say uh, some current affair talk show, and they'll ring me up and they'll go blind by. Will you come on and will you talk about issues affecting young people? And then I'll say to them, you know I'm in my mid-thirties, yeah? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, yeah. And and for a while I thought, maybe because I have a bag on my head, they think Blind Boy is just in his twenties forever. Yeah. And then I realise, no. What society has had to do is redefine what a young person is. So now, if you're in your thirties, you're considered a young person. And that to me is wrong. It's because people in their thirties are 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 being forced to behave and live to the standards that people in their late teens and twenties were twenty years ago. And, and you know, you're still and now we're calling people in their thirties young people. It's like they're not. This used to be middle aged. Yeah, and you're so right. What you said there, this is wrong, and I think that is one of the most powerful statements that I have tried to get across and make that this is wrong. This is unacceptable. And this is this idea I think they were challenging is that somehow this is just, you know, we should just get along with it, you know, that you should just accept it. No, Mm -hmm. this and the the counterpoint that runs parallel to that idea that this is wrong is that there's an alternative way of doing it, is that actually we can solve it and we can. That's one of the reasons I have you on here now, Rory, because so a lot of people speak about why don't you protest? And then some people will say, it's so confusing. I'm not really sure what I should be protesting against. Yeah. Or even not even protest. Some people say, what policies policies should I look for? It's so confusing. I'm not sure. It's like, remember the water protests in 2015? Yeah. And how passionate people got. Mm. I think a part of that reason is that it was really obvious. What are you protesting against? Water's free and they're trying to make it not free. Okay, I'm going to protest. But with this, it's it's much more complex. It's like, what does NAMA mean? What's a vulture fund? What's a cuckoo fund? I don't know. Everything's just shit, but I can't see what that thing is that I'm supposed to be angry about. And this is what makes it difficult to have vision and focus and determination in what you want. Yeah, you're, you're right. And, and it is more confusing than just the water charges. It is more complex. Mm-hmm. And I suppose what I have tried to do and really, really worked hard (laughs) was to try and communicate a number of ideas that are solutions that people could connect with and go, yeah, okay, I can see that would actually fix it. And I think that's why I'm probably rattling a few cages at the moment. You fucking certainly are. (laughs) Um, I'm going to ask a question now, which is... is, uh... From a political point of view, so if we t- from a democratic perspective, look, each individual party is going to have housing policies. Now, I don't want you to, I, I, I never recommend, I never tell people who to vote for. I just simply don't do that. I think it's irresponsible. But from your perspective, which political parties in Ireland have got policies that you think are positive and policies that you think are negative? Without kind of saying, we're not telling anyone to vote for anyone. Yeah, I, I think that the way I would put it is I think the starting point for me right now where we're at right now 
is about when you asked me and said people are confused. The starting point, I feel, is we need to get generation rent, generation stuck at home, people who are worried about this, concerned about it, agreeing around a set of policies that we want. And yeah. then we take that to the political classes and political system. Is one of these policies housing should be a, a human right in the Constitution? Absolutely. That is... Um, number one there's a number of them and, and if you don't mind give me a second list them out yeah, go for it take, yeah. take a few of them because I really think this is important that we do see that there are uh, solutions I think the starting point is your vision where do you want to be where do we want to see the Irish housing system in 10 years and 20 years time and what I want to see and my vision for this country is that every single person is in a home that's affordable that's decent standard and that they're secure, they're not worried about being evicted from. It could be owned, mm-hmm. it could be rented. but And that's the predominant way our housing should be. So we don't, and I'll be straight up, there's, that is your housing system. You're not thinking, oh, what investors are there? What built to rent is there? What you know, office student accommodation is there? What you're thinking is, that's your starting point, your vision. And that's sustainable, that we build in communities. And if you, mm-hmm. that's where you want to get to, your starting point has to be, your policy has to be built around the right to housing. What is the right to housing? The right to housing is, is set out by the United Nations. It's internationally agreed. It's these ideas. That someone has already done the work. It's all done. It's all there. It's, oh, it's, for fuck's sake. <laughs> and the even funnier thing is the Irish government has signed up to international treaties, which include it. But the oh, problem is the they're not legally uh, binding. But so we need to put it in our constitution. Article 43 of our constitution. And that requires a referendum. That requires a referendum. And actually, interestingly, we just had Fianna Fáil Senators propose a the referendum with good wording in it uh, in the Shannon on Friday, and that uh, appears to have passed. So it appears that we have a growing political consensus for this referendum, but it needs to happen very, very, very soon um, mm-hmm. because we need that obligation to be put on whatever government is there that they have a responsibility to solve this crisis. Right to housing. Also, for example, we just saw with the COVID restrictions being lifted. Um, that they had to lift the eviction ban, they had to lift the the rent freeze, which has meant uh, renters are back insecure again. Why did they have to do that? Because of landlords' right to private property. So that needs to be changed. We need to get back protection. So hold on a second. So so we don't have uh, in the constitution uh, for for housing to be a right, but landlords do have a right to private property. Absolutely. Yeah. And is that in our constitution? That is in our constitution, Article 43. Why is that? Is that some fucking formation of the state? Are scared of the Brits? They'll take our potatoes? Yes. It, it, it goes back to that. Um, and of course the, the irony of it now being used to uh, exploit our own population uh, Jesus. is uh, is deeply... Uh, but there is a, there is a qualifying um, article within that, that, that Article 43, which says that that right to private property can be um, limited according to what's called the common good. But the problem is that common okay. good has not been defined in terms of... How do you of, define that? Yeah, how do you define and, that? And, and everything we can see right now, the level of homelessness, the what's happening to children, the mental health crisis, like the, the, this is none of this is serving the common good. It's serving the common bad. It is. And what's what I'm really worried about, and I set this out in my book, and I've talked about it a lot in my podcast um, on Reboot Republic, is... I think we're heading to a dystopia, uh, a dystopia mm-hmm. of permanent, unaffordable housing, of young people having to emigrate again, of, of soulless build to rent apartments, soulless you know towns and cities packed with Airbnb, not building communities. So you have the right to housing. The second thing is then how do you get affordable housing? 
you get affordable housing by the state building it. And I think that's the big shift. The state, as in it, it uses... Like, why won't the state build council houses? Why won't that? Why aren't they doing that? And that's ideology. It's ideology. And they want to protect the market. Like, I saw just... Like, I've heard Leo say before that, like, oh, what do you want council estates for? Sure, aren't they shit? Yeah. Now, that's a paraphrase now, but that was a general <laughs> paraphrase of what he was saying, is that when someone asked him why not build social housing, he gave a very classist opinion about what council estates are and why would you want to recreate that? He did. And and this, though, is, is a, there's two, two points to that. One is that it is classist and it is ideologically biased against social housing. It's a Thatcherite mm-hmm. view of, you know, that's a collective... That's, you know, people should get, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, you know, ignores all the inequalities and reasons why people uh, require support for housing. Um, but the other side of it is that in actual fact, what I'm talking about and a solution, I think what we should demand, and this is this key idea, the new vision for housing, is public housing, no longer like council housing just for those on low incomes, but like they do in Vienna in Austria, anybody mm-hmm can get public housing. And one of your um, commentators, one of the people asking questions on Instagram referred to as universal public housing. That's what we Mm -hmm. need. And you build it. And the Brits tried to do that for a while. The Barbican estate in London was initially, um, it it was an estate for literally anybody. It had nothing to do with your income. Here's public housing for anybody. Yeah. And, And it's an obvious, like, why aren't we renting, building? Why aren't local authorities? Okay, and it comes back to, we have loads of ways to do this right now. So NAMA could be doing it like I looked at NAMA has the ability to build 70,000 houses over the next three years. It has the land. It has the money. And you know what it's doing at the moment? It's selling them to bloody investors. Our own state. Like Roy, that doesn't make that. Here's the tip. What what angers me about that is like, I can't even understand how a government can do that. It's like, why do you want all the young people gone out of the, why do you want a dystopia? You know what I mean? Like if NAMA, if NAMA can do this, if NAMA can actually solve the problem right now and keep young people in the country, like what do they, why do they want to do this? Why do they want to set everything on fire? Well, again, there's a number of responses to that. One is that we have historically, and I talked about this, sacrificed generation after generation. Like you go. That's part of our culture. It's part of our political yeah. culture. And you go back even further to the famine when we had ruling classes who are Catholic and Protestant in this country, big rich landowners who are happy mm-hmm. for and saw this explicitly and we saw it recently in RT had a great documentary on it that they were happy for the poor to be evicted. They used the famine to evict the poor off the land so that they could get large landownings. We have an ability to turn a blind eye. Look at what's happened in the Magdalen uh, institutions. We have an ability, yeah. a ruling direct tra- provision, direct provision, homelessness, The generation's been forced to immigration. There is a deeply disturbing culture of an ability to sacrifice groups in Irish society to keep the status quo in place. And that is why I hope Generation Rent are the generation who brought us marriage, who brought us repeal, who actually say, no, we're ending. We're actually going to make a historical break in this country and say no longer are we going to allow groups to be sacrificed for a status quo of privilege to continue. But we're actually going to change things properly and stay and coming back to the, you know, you asked how do they and why do they? I think it is a mix of that cultural thing, of of that ability. I think it's it's actually now because you know in the modern day, I think there's an element as a problem with our politicians who are disassociated, who are repressed, who actually can't mm-hmm. relate, empathetic to people, to other people. I think there's a problem of empathy, basic empathy. Um, I think that it is they're captured by investor interests. 
the Kennedy Wilsons, mm-hmm. the Lone Stars, the Real Estate Investment Trust. That's who they listen to. Is there an argument there? Now, this is, this is, I, I don't want to become a da on Facebook, but some people say that like our politicians are wooed by these large, powerful investment funds because after their political career, they may end up getting jobs on the boards of these things. I, I don't know. Now, that's that's very fucking Facebook comedy it is logic. A bit, it is a bit conspiratorial, but I think, there, you know, you can look at evidences there. You look at uh, Brian Hayes, for example, the former Fine Gael yeah. minister who is now working for the banking system. You yeah. know, there are examples of that. Um, I would, for me, it's more that they believe in the same ideology of the market. It is that they see them as the interests they are working for. They're the mm-hmm. circles they move in. Um, mm-hmm. And they're disconnected from the reality of, of ordinary people. That's what I actually feel. And um, another thing, again, just to take it a little bit Facebook commenty, but people often comment that a huge proportion of Irish politicians are landlords themselves. Yeah, I think the, the figures are about a quarter of TDs are landlords. And if you look at the political parties, which have the most number of landlords, it is Fine Gael, as far as I'm aware, landlords and landowners. Um, and then Fianna Fáil, as far as I'm aware, I don't have the exact figures to me. But yeah, a significant proportion of policymakers um, are landlords. And you can't... Should that not deeply concern us? It, it should. It should. But I, I think it reflects, to me in certain... It reflects the lack of diversity, lack of <laughs> representation in our politics in that way. Um, you know, and it is deeply concerning. But I think what's more concerning <laughs> is the decisions that they're making to prioritise these investors and their willingness to accept the social cost. And there is incompetence as well, though. I don't think they understand yeah, of course. this. I don't think they understand it. I don't think... Like, I'm sure you've you've spoken to a lot of politicians in, in your time. And sometimes, and as have I, and sometimes you're like, how the fuck do you tie your shoelaces? <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's it's sometimes you meet someone who's who has real power and on a conversational level, they're just very naive like, I wouldn't trust this person with a trouser press, the, but yet they have power. Yeah, the problem is our politics still promotes this local, often popularity contest or people who are, you know, their family. Or nepotism. Nepotism, their their parents were TDs or councillors. And that it's only recently we're seeing in more of the, I think, you know, the parties like Social Democrats, Sinn Féin, the others who are... Um, promoting people who have an expertise. You know, you look at Owen O'Brien, you can't deny his expertise on housing. Exactly. You look at, you know, Keno Callaghan, for example, the Social Democrat spokesperson as well on housing. Um, you know, they're, they're people who've studied, you know, who've, who've researched this. There are increasingly experts in areas, but it's still, you know, it's still the problem is politics uh, promotes popularity contests and, yeah. as you say, nepotism and doesn't promote expertise necessarily. Um, and that is an issue. But I think more broadly that what's needed and you, you asked me, you know, which policies. And, I, I, you know, I think that, as I said, the state needs to build. And the other thing what it needs to do is it needs to get back to cooperatives, you know, cooperatives like people yeah. working together to build. There's a there's a, a cooperative called the Okulon Housing, Co-Housing Alliance. You probably heard it. Mm-hmm. They're the only one who have actually built affordable housing in this country in the last decade. The government has not built one affordable home. And the private mm-hmm. development sector hasn't built an affordable home either. Um, mm-hmm. The We should be building communities through our housing system. Like, why isn't the state, which has massive land banks in Limerick, in Cork, 
in Galway, in Waterford, in Dublin, massive, all around Dublin, all around. And where it doesn't have it, it should be buying it, CPOing it. And why isn't it bringing people who need housing together and saying, right, let's we'll do, we'll give you support, seed fund, set up a cooperative, we'll help you to build whoever wants to, you know, own a house, let's go together, form an ownership cooperative, people who want to rent, go together, and let's roll this out. Let's build this and build an alternative. And housing. you're not talking about a fantasy utopia here. You're talking about stuff that other countries yeah. have done and it has worked. Denmark, 20% of its housing is cooperatives. You know, we've done it in the past. You know, there's loads of housing around this country that was built by cooperatives. That, you know, our bloody, you know, farming system was built on cooperatives. And this is the point in the value shift. And if our state, and why I put that headline and with the journal Tarai, and why I've made the case over and over that our government really doesn't want affordable housing and wasn't doesn't want to solve the housing crisis. Because yeah. if it did, it would be doing those kind of things. It would be directing NAMA to sell its housing affordably to people. It would be using the public land and now historically the finance we can borrow to build affordable housing through local authority mm-hmm. sellers. It would be supporting local cooperatives all around the country, getting communities together, you know, um, building it. It would be stopping the investment funds. It would actually ask me policies. It would include apartments in the measures to stop um, investment mm-hmm. funds. And importantly, it would put in place rent mechanisms to actually make rent affordable. And it would put in place the uh, remove the ability of landlords, investors to evict a tenant if they're going to sell the property or move a family in. How do you feel about rent caps, Rory? Because rent caps is a weird rent caps is one of those ones that whenever I mention it on Twitter, a bot gets into my comment <laughs> that has been set up specifically to argue against rent caps. Yeah. And rent caps, whenever that happens, I go, if someone has put money into bots to argue with me every time I mention something, then something is up. How do you feel about rent caps? I think rent caps are a good idea. I think that you need when you have rents as high as we have, you need to even go beyond rent caps. I think what you need is measures that make rent affordable, which is, mm-hmm. for example... You know, all the new build to rent apartments, any new apartment that's built, that can be rented whatever rate the um, new build to rent investor wants to rent at. There's no cap yeah. on it. Now, it's supposed to be. Well, well it's supposed again, to be uh, when I see rent. arguments on Facebook, Rory, when I so when I when I bring this shit up on Facebook, you spend too much time on Facebook. I know, I know. <laughs> but I, I, I'll see people saying um, I, I, uh, I was given a second. I was given a house by my parents. I inherited it and I don't want to exploit people but the tax that they the, that's charged on me is too much so i would love to rent my house at an affordable price but i can't because i have to spend 50 percent rent or 50 percent uh, tax on this or you hear people saying um i got this second house during the boom and then i got fucked over in the recession what do you want me to do i'm a landlord but i have no choice yeah i would say straight up the state can right now borrow at basically zero cost it buys the unit yeah. off you and rents it out as social housing. So you don't have to worry about it anymore. If you really don't want to be a landlord, there you go. <laughs> Brilliant. You know, but seriously. Excellent. Excellent. You know, they're yeah. the sort of things you do. Like, it, it, yeah. And it comes back to me that that's the point I make. They don't want to solve it. They want to keep the system going as it is, the status quo. They're not willing to step outside and go, actually, because they're worried about the whole horse, house, the, <laughs> the horse outside. They're worried about the house of cards falling down, you know, the property yeah. system. And this is where it does come into, I think that, you know, people say, oh, you're naive in what you say. No, I'm not naive. Other countries are doing it. We could do it. We've done it in the past. But what I am very clear about is 
there are interests who benefit very clearly mm-hmm. from this existing system. This isn't a housing crisis for everybody. But I think what I hope has changed is that come back to values. I really hope and I do see it that generation rent, generation stuck at home are number one saying we want a housing system that provides us with homes. I don't care about investment assets or all that nonsense. And their parents, who are the middle class voters, who are the ones Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael listen to, are also mm-hmm. saying, do you know what? That housing system is broken. Let's do it differently. So my hope is that that's that value societal shift that's underway. The political system hasn't realized it yet, but it's coming at them. Mm-hmm. And I think that what I'm trying to do is nurture that and make yeah. it clear because we could go all over the place. You know, we could do what England are doing, which is you you actually continue on with your housing crisis and it just gets worse and worse. Um, yeah. Or we could make radical change and people or else people will emigrate. People will get apathetic. People will get depressed. People will give up. Mm-hmm. And I don't want that to happen to people. I want mm-hmm. this to be a country where we give everybody a chance. Where everybody gets an opportunity. And the home yeah. is the starting place. Yeah. And that's what we should do. And I'm getting choked up and emotional again because I feel it. Mm-hmm. That we could do this. And we should be doing it. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Um, one question I also got asked was about, just about people with mortgages. How can someone be... Ter- how, this is a big one that people wonder about. How can someone be turned down for a mortgage in Ireland when they're paying almost double that in monthly rent? Yeah, I, I think that's a... Like it is madness, you know, that you're paying that much in rent. Of course, it's proof that you can pay that. Um, yeah. The issue about the people not being able to access mortgages and, and the central bank limits. The central bank limits have been shown in analysis. I don't have the figures top of my hand, but roughly house prices would be 20% more than they are now if the limits weren't in place. Right. Mm-hmm. So we need limits. But the problem is, if you don't have housing that's available for sale in those limits, then that's your problem. So the solution is not, which what the government is doing with the shared equity scheme is give people more money so they can try and go out, chase more housing. And of course, we're back in our Celtic Tiger. It's all pushing up prices. Because affordable housing now, according to the government, is like 400 grand. Yeah, that's nonsense. You know, fuck me. Affordable housing is 150,000 or 700 a month of rent. That's affordable housing. And so the question is, how, are, how does our housing system produce that, those type of houses? And that requires, like, if builders, you know, and, and developers increase, more so developers than builders, right? Builders are just the people who go out mm-hmm. and build the homes and they have a key role and they're the ones the state should be hiring to build affordable housing. But you have the developers, you know, who've bought the land, who, you know, access the finance, who then hire the builders. The developers who are increasingly investment funds are lobbying the government constantly saying, you know, ah, it's not quite affordable for us. To, you know, you know, it's not viable for us to build at these prices, you know, jack them up a bit higher. And that's what they told the government with the shared equity scheme. You know, we need you to add a state loan on top of a state mortgage, on top of a, a private bank mortgage so that we'll get enough money for the houses we're going to build and apartments mm-hmm. we're going to build. And like, you're going, what? Like, there's no question. Why is a government saddling more debt on its people and saying that's okay. Yeah. That's not okay. That's not right. The market has no morals. The market doesn't care about affordable housing. Why are you building your housing policy around the market when it does not care? 
Market cares about profits. Exactly. Housing is, should not be about profit. It should be about providing people homes. What I'd like to know as well, and you, you touched on it at the start of the podcast, there, there must have been a time when Ireland was doing things right. Like, my own situation. So my parents... My parents didn't have fancy jobs. My ma worked in Dunn stores, packing shells. My dad uh, worked in, in Aer Lingus, just a, a regular entry-level job. And they were able to get a house and to own it. And I remember saying to my ma, they would have bought a house in the 60s. I said, did you get? Did you go to the bank? And she's like, no, the banks weren't even involved. It was like the council or something. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and and I, I was trying to ask her, I was like, you got a house and you didn't have to go to a bank? And she's like, no, we paid like, I don't think it was called a mortgage, but we paid money to the council. Like, what the fuck? What was that? Do you know what you know about that was around the 60s? Yeah, there was. And was that a good thing? There was help to buy schemes within the, the council itself. So if you were in council housing, you could, there was different schemes available where people could would be supported to buy their, their home and they could allocate a certain amount of their rent to buying the house to the council itself. Um, and over time, they would be able to buy it. And yeah, there was a time when we did housing really good in this country. Is that a good or a bad thing, or is that closer to that Thatcher shit? Well, you see, because I know in England they gave people right to buy, yeah, but then they didn't they didn't build more council that, houses, so council houses disappeared. Yeah, that's the problem. I think that it's a tough one, right? Because I think the starting point is you have to be providing, you have to continue. Your starting point is you continue to build public housing, and that includes this idea of universal public housing. So people for working incomes, for anybody, for artists, architects, engineers, cleaners, mm -hmm. you know, people who are unemployed, we build public housing for everybody. That's your starting point. And mm -hmm. so when you do that, and if you're doing that enough of it, you can also be building to sell as well. And I think that what, you know, in, in terms of those schemes of people buying, I think that if you had, and we look at Vienna, Vienna is a great example. It's worth people looking up Vienna. Look up Vienna and social housing and you'll just mm -hmm. be blown away. They have swimming pools, they have gyms, saunas, you know, community rooms because everybody lives there. It's mixed. People are proud to live in social housing and council housing. It's like... But that's a cult. That's obviously a cultural thing as well because the, the problem here as well is you kind of say to people, how do you... There is a, there's a certain type of Irish person who wants to buy loads of house like that Celtic Tiger? Yeah, but you know what I'd say to that? I'd say that's you know to be honest, our priority is people who want to have a secure home, and I know yeah. for Generation Rent, they'd be happy to you know oh, yeah. buy a home oh, geez, in a secure yeah. community, to rent a home in a secure community. They don't have that like that idea. People in their twenties now are not thinking about flipping houses. Yeah. they're thinking about can I have somewhere to live. Where I don't have to think about it. But, uh, it's just that it's ambient. My house is an ambient thing in my life. And what I'm worried about and thinking about are my passions and dreams. And also things like we talk about family. You know, I've been contacted by yeah. people. Uh, they're sure no one's having kids. They're not having There's kids. people not having won't... kids, man. What? Like people are not able to have kids. You go, these life decisions are been taken away from you because our government. People were having kids in their 20s. And it was just a thing that happened. It was. And even the 30s. Do you know what I mean? Now it's like, you know, people, it's late 30s. They're going and going. Late 30. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People yeah. Are, are going, you know, I'm, I actually, you know, I lost the opportunity to have kids. People have contacted mm -hmm. me. Yeah. And I go. I know people like that. I know people like, like that. It's just, it's just too late now. I don't want to be 70 when, when they're yeah, 20. But like, I think, how the fuck are people not up in, like, just going, you've stolen my life from me. You know? And 
Yeah. I just feel that, that like that we should we need to talk about this so much more. Because I think if we talked about it more, it's the same. I tell you, that, you know, do you know when I think of that, right? I don't like talking about it because then I go, Am I gonna try and do a nineteen sixteen here? <laughs> you know what I mean? No, it's I literally it's it's you're kind of you're so disillusioned by the political system that it's like we're gonna take over the GPO? Yeah? <laughs> We're going to grow a moustache like James Connolly, take a shit in the Lewis. Yeah? <laughs> is that what we're going to do? Because is protest enough? Is protest enough? Is voting is, is voting for a political party enough? I, I think that... The anger is so much. The anger is so much that sometimes people are afraid to think about it because yeah. their minds end up going to 2016. Absolutely. I, I don't want to go there. I don't want to start thinking yeah. about... I've gone uh, there. I've thought shit. about that proclamation and what it says about cherishing all children of, of the nation yeah. equally. I've thought about it year after year. When I see homeless children eating out of uh, takeaway cartons on Dublin's yeah. street because they can't get, you know, they're living in emergency accommodation. I think of it every time, that proclamation and what it said, what this republic was supposed to be, what it's founding people, Connolly, the whole lot. And, and I do think that's important because the emotion is taken out of this. And when you take mm-hmm. the emotion out of it, you have people like that person you just said, but I want to be able to buy five homes and I want to be able to rent out. And you're going, Sorry. You know, actually, we're building our housing system around people and human beings, yeah. not investment assets. And that's our starting point. And I think that's the big change. And for people who are angry, Sometimes what can be helpful too, Rory, is, is when, when you're speaking about this, this way to these people, is, is rem- remind them of things that we still have. Like, okay, pregnancy, for instance. If someone gets pregnant in this country, they don't have to pay for it. Yeah. Doesn't matter who the fuck you are. Mm. If you get pregnant in this country then maternity services are well-funded. And that's a good thing. Yeah. And why don't we just do that then with housing as well? Exactly. What, what, exactly. And education. Yeah, housing, education, health. They're the three yeah. things you need. And from that, you can deal with precarious work. I'm not saying it's right, and of course we need to address that as well. But you yeah. can, if you have a secure home, you have an affordable home that's available... Then you can, you know, you can have your kids, you can do your family, you can do your what you want to do, your music, your education, your all that, your, you know, in a shitty job if that's what you're in, you know, but you know you have your base yeah. to come back to. You're not worried about that. That's the thing. People can't even, yeah, people with the shitty job now don't, don't, yeah. they don't but have I the think, space to do the things outside the shitty job that makes the shitty job acceptable. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and you see the the young people, you know, on the streets of Dublin and been harassed and harangued and, you know, people getting up yeah. to all sorts and you go, what do they have? I would ask yeah. that question. What do they have? What future are you giving them? You know, and that's where I go to that, you know, you say about 1916. And I do feel we need to channel a bit of that. I do feel yeah. we need to get angry. I do feel we need to raise our voices, but we can do this in constructive ways. And I think mm-hmm. that there's, you know, we're a couple of years out for a general election. We don't need the blood sacrifice just yet. <laughs> well, the problem is they've been sacrificed already. Bloody, but, yeah, uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah. you know, people can like, there's an organization called Uplift, which mm-hmm. is an online digital campaign group that has a petition set up that I've been linking in with them around this. You can go sign that petition. That's very clear demands for what should be done around the right to housing, stopping the investor funds. People can go on to that. And what does it mean if that gets enough signatures? So what I feel is happening is that the more and more public pressure is put on government this is a you know it's an age-old uh social change tool this is you know we've seen it in repeal we've seen it in marriage equality we've seen it in water charge you see it all the time and things and we, like the government for example you know did react to the investment fund pressure 
and did something. It wasn't meaningful, but they did something because they felt the pressure. If if the politicians feel the pressure enough, they'll change. That's what I think. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So we need to make them, they need to feel the pressure and how you do it in a constructive way, I think. So petitions are a really important way. If we got that to 100,000, mm-hmm. 200,000, a million signatures, they can't ignore that. The media can't ignore it. Mm-hmm. If you then start talking to your parents, talking to your friends, talking to your family, talking to everybody mm-hmm. on social media, share it. Say, do you know what? There's four solutions to this crisis. A right to housing in the constitution, the state, the state government to build 30,000 affordable houses every year, put in place uh, tenant protections. And uh, the last one's gone out of my head. Well, there we go. Three, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. But, you know, they're there. You know, let's get everybody talking about those. And let's, oh, sorry, the fourth thing was people telling their story, saying we're not accepting mm-hmm. it and telling the human story. Get that conversation going. Let's turn... And then contextualize that conversation also within... You can look at the mental health crisis in the context of this too because a huge problem for young people is going, I don't know where I'm going to be in 20 years. I cannot see. Yeah. If, if You need to be able to say it to yourself, I can at least imagine where I'm going to be. Yeah. And quite a lot of people don't have that. They don't have the sense of... A huge problem, Rory, is... The, the sense of adult autonomy. Yeah. Being able to go, I'm a fucking adult and I'm separate to my parents and I'm my own person and I make my choices. You're not making that when you're 32 living in the, in, in the spare bedroom. No. And your ma's still kind of washing your jocks. Yeah. Because the, the... I don't believe it's psychologically possible to fully live in your parents' gaff and then for the emotional, historical relationship you have with your parents to not be present. No, do you know what I mean? No, absolutely. Like, you, speaking to your parents as an adult is something that you can only do when you're fully independent and separate. But once you're living under that roof, once you're going in the morning, yeah, fuck it, I'll have a few sausages, <laughs> man, if you're making them. It's, it's right that you're infantilized. You're, you're infantilized, and when you're in, yeah. when you're infantilized, you can't have self-esteem. When you don't have self-esteem, that's when your mental health isn't shit. Yeah, you don't have self-worth. Yeah, no, you're absolutely correct. The this housing crisis is also a mental health crisis. And mm-hmm. it is a, you have set out exactly how it links. But I think the self-esteem one is really important because when people feel, again, the housing crisis, their housing situation, living in their parents' house is their own fault, yeah. then the self-esteem is knocked and they mm-hmm. don't feel a capacity to change it. That affects other aspects of their life. Um, of course, it, it feeds into depression. It feeds into anxiety. But it feeds into people's sense of self, like the pride someone has, be it a rental home or be it an owned home when they go and they can bring their parents over, you know, yeah. you can't ever, or, or their bloody partner or whatever, or friends. People aren't riding, Rory. Well, that could there's be, I imagine not, there's, that's just, the there's young too. people. There's young people not able to have sex. There's yeah. young people not, not able to, to, because it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm fucking 27. I'm not riding someone with my parents next door in the room. Well, it's certainly, I imagine, a lot more rushed anyway. <laughs> yeah. But that sexuality, is, again, is a huge part of, of the is. human condition, who yeah. we are. Yeah. Like, fucking hell. Yeah. No, it, it's, it's, it is. It's personal development. You know, these are, these are actual psychological developmental stages that people go through. But then and then the if you don't thing, go I, through them, they're psychologically destructive to you. Because I've done a podcast on this before where um, 
I, I, I was saying that the Tom Hanks film Big is actually a work of accurate science fiction. Because if you, you know the, the Tom Hanks yeah, film. Yeah, I, I was yeah. listening to this one on you. I heard it. Yeah, yeah. It's a good point. Yeah. So, so, like, we as a generation have become infantilized mm. because of things like this. Yeah. But then you have a toxic corporate environment of the digital corporations where when you turn up, like I was looking at um, shared accommodation. You know those shared accommodation things that they're trying to do, do in Dublin? Is the co-living. The co-living. Yeah. So one of these co-living developers said, when someone said to them, do you think it's fair to have adults, 27 adults sharing one kitchen? This developer literally said, should these people work in Google and Facebook? Their, their, you know, dinners are provided for them and stuff. They don't really need kitchens. And then I started to think, the corporations that are providing jobs are actively infantilizing their employees with bouncy castles, with providing dinner, with providing breakfasts. They're becoming a paternal role. It's not your employer anymore. You don't have rights. They're your fucking parents. And this is somehow exploiting this culture of feeling like infants, even though we're in our 30s. And do you know what? You know, you're absolutely right. And I think that the housing adds to that and whether you're renting and people feel like, you know, they can't buy a home, they have no security when they're renting. And that's something the government could do overnight. They could give tenants proper security by removing the ability to evict them, by putting in place a permanent uh, security of tenure. Then people Mm -hmm. could actually at least plan something. But the, the big thing I think, though, is interesting is can this be an opportunity where young people take their power back and actually say, do you know what? We can have some power and capability here if we change this. And I feel we are at a moment in time. I really do. We're at like a crossroads. Is this going to be a a permanent, unaffordable dystopia, immigration, people suffering, mental health crisis continued from the housing system? Or actually we going to take a big, different, a big, brave move and go down the Denmark, Vienna, affordable homes road? And I think that a lot of this depends on whether the younger people and everyone who feels, you know, part of this actually does goes, takes their power and capacity and goes, no, this is a turning point. The ESRI, our state advisory agency, uh, research, independent research agency, but it's one of the state's uh, longstanding research agencies, just said last week, the state can borrow between four to seven billion every year, should borrow four to seven billion to build affordable housing and social housing and that it could do this without jeopardizing the economy. This is game changer mm-hmm. stuff. The state can do this, but I think it needs. And then again, I've probably asked you, why the fuck won't they then if they can do it? Is it because this is unfavorable for the investors? It is the combination of things that I said. It's like they, they got themselves locked into a policy that developed as they developed over time in favor of the investors moving away from building social housing, turning to the private landlords, protecting these different interests, the property finance, um, uh, banking, the property finance industrial complex of property interests, developers, financiers, investors, this real estate interests that they have orientated their policy to them and they've got us to this point. And if they were to say now, actually, we need to change all this. We were wrong. Are they mature? What are are the consequences of the government doing that? Huh? What are the consequences of the government tomorrow saying to all these investors, you're fucking our country up, so fuck off like Germany did. What are the consequences then? What what, what can the big scary investment funds do to Ireland if Ireland tomorrow, the government say, fuck off, 
No more. We, it's not fair for a giant pile of cash to to compete with uh, a, a, a fucking a family of people in their 30s. That's not fair, so fuck off. Currently, they could do nothing. They would just have to accept it. And that's what Germany did. That's what Germany did. And if you look at it, what actually would happen, of course, is the investors would jump up and down. They'd say Ireland is not a favourable place to invest in. What's the main reason the government's saying we need... They, they really didn't stop, weren't, didn't put measures to stop them coming in. They still want them coming in. They say we need them to supply uh, in apartments, basically. We need to uh, supply of housing and apartments, mainly apartments. But that's bullshit but because you've just said that they can borrow that money exactly. and build themselves. Exactly. So that's bullshit. And also, the type of housing that they are providing is this unaffordable rental. Yeah. And so yeah. why? how is that any sort of good supply? Do you know what would happen? Yeah. The price of land would drop massively. So then mm-hmm. the state could buy up that land. Apartment prices would drop dramatically. That's what would ha- happen. Houses would drop in prices. And people would be able to buy affordable ones. And the state would be able to buy up more land that's now cheap and hand it over to a mixture of housing associations, cooperatives, Irish builders, and build affordable housing. One last question, Rory, right? And this is a question that I want to ask myself and also a question that I was asked. So you're you're, you're a lecturer in social policy you've dedicated a huge amount of your adult life to researching this area, to thinking about it, to doing this at the highest level. Why isn't someone like you in, in, in a position in government to make these calls? Like, do the question on Instagram was, do experts in social policy ever have any input into housing policy or are the reports research solutions ignored by the government? Like, it just doesn't make sense that you've dedicated so much of your life to this and then it's like, well, why, why isn't Rory in, in, in being listened to then? Or, or not you, the other people in your field also? Well, I think that it goes back to who government and decision makers have listened to over the last decade. And I go even further back. And it's not people like me who advocate and who research for public housing, for affordable housing, for the right to housing. They have listened to the investment funds, the property interests, academics who promote that approach, the market approach. Um, is that known as lobbying? It is known as lobbying, yeah. That, that's who they've okay. listened to. They've listened to the lobbyists and they have tried to paint people like me as being ideological. And I say I absolutely am ideological. I have an ideology, which is the housing system should provide affordable homes for people. And I believe housing is a human right. <laughs> Like that's Fucking that's deeply great. ideological. Yeah, isn't it? yeah, 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 yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. And um, why they don't listen is because then they try. Because I'm I've obviously been pointing out for the last and have been banging on since well over a decade that their housing policies weren't weren't going to work to provide affordable housing. What is the incentive for a politician to listen to that person over rather than you? What does that person, what does Mr. Investor, Mr. Lobbyist have that's so shiny and lovely to an individual politician or a minister for housing? What did they have that you don't? Bags of cash. There you go. (laughs) There you go. Mountains Mountains and mountains of cash. And that's not just... Mountains of cash going to that politician, and I wouldn't, you know, it's not that it's going yeah, of directly course, of to course. them. It's the mountains of cash 
that says we're going to deliver all these homes for you. Don't worry about it. You know, we're going to... And we will make you look good to your constituents. Exactly. And we'll keep the property prices high and we'll keep the rents high, which you think is what your <laughs> constituents want. But you misread the room. They have seriously misread the room. Um, I've had you for nearly two hours now, Rory, so I'm going to leave, I'll leave it off at this, all right? <gasps> good man. Jeez, but we could keep going. I know. Thank you so much for that chat, right? That was absolutely fucking fantastic. Listen. So that was a really enjoyable chat. Um, it left me feeling informed and empowered with a sense of purpose. And I hope it did the same for you. Fair play to Rory Hearn. Check out his podcast, Reboot Republic. Um, one thing I one thing I want... There's a number of things. That I, could, I could have talked to Rory for a lot longer. I might have him on again. One thing I didn't ask or address and I wish I did, is I wanted to let you know of an organisation called CATU, C-A-T-U, which is the Community Action Tenants Union. And they're an Irish grassroots union for tenants. And also I think landlords can join as well. But basically, if you join the CATU union, if you're renting, what it does is it, they collectively act to protect people from eviction alongside and this is one thing I wish I got into and we didn't alongside the the inequality of this housing crisis and the rent crisis it's also been bolstered by the Irish police the Gardaí and unfortunately people are being evicted from their homes often unfairly sometimes slum landlords are given more rights than tenants people are really being exploited and an eviction is a very traumatic and unfair thing to happen CATU Community Action Tenants Union look them up online when you join this union collectively what they do is they when someone's getting evicted everyone shows up everyone shows up and creates noise and makes it difficult for these unfair evictions to happen so I would recommend check out CATU C-A-T-U and consider joining that union I'll chat to you next week I'll probably have a hot take. Who knows? In the meantime, enjoy the lovely weather. Enjoy our new freedoms. Meet a friend, have a drink, go to the gym, rub a dog. Smell the fucking air. Beautiful, beautiful air right now in June. Fantastic air. The nighttime air. The air at nighttime. All air in June is magnificent. The morning air. I don't know any air in June that isn't class. Four in the morning air before the fucking sun comes up and the birds start singing. It's just class air in June. Yurt. <laughs>